Good morning, Sanctuary. It's good to be with you all this morning. It's good to see your faces and to see family and friends and all of that and new faces. It's just a lovely time to be together. Uh, This year for Lent, Sanctuary has embraced this theme that we're calling Again and Again. Father Paul set us up so beautifully last week in this theme, and we're reminded in this theme again and again, we're reminded of a couple things at the very same time, okay? We're reminded, first of all, that suffering and brokenness in life continue to find us, that we experience this over and over again, again and again. And we continue to mess up over and over again. I'm not sure if you've experienced that. (laughs) I've experienced that. That we mess up again and again. And it's healthy and it's appropriate to acknowledge that, to not deny it. It's unhealthy to live our lives somehow just confessing prosperity and ignoring suffering. Or it's unhealthy to ignore or hide our sin, to live our lives failing to acknowledge the brokenness of our own lives or the brokenness of the systems of our world. That's not healthy. It's not appropriate. It's not right. And yet, just as we're reminded that suffering finds us, that brokenness finds us, that we mess up again and again, we're also reminded of something else at the very same time. And that is that again and again, God breaks the cycle that God steps in and offers a new way forward. We are reminded of our brokenness again and again, and we are also reminded that God steps in and chooses us again and again. When we were preparing to head to Tulsa from Nashville, it's about a 10-hour drive, and I was talking to my seven-year-old Lucy, and uh, she was so excited to see family, so excited to see her cousins, her cousins that she sees, and so excited to be around everybody. And she was equally intimidated by the 10-hour drive that lay ahead of us. And so uh, she said, she said, Dad, hey, Daddy, on this trip, when we go, do you think you could take shortcuts so we could get there faster? <laughs> I said, sweetie, I, I take the shortest cuts I know how to take but it's still going to take just as long to get there. We just got to get there. Well, we often look for shortcuts in our lives, don't we? We look for a fast track to faithfulness. We spend much of our lives when we undergo suffering, kind of scratching our heads about the hard things. What? What's going on here? Plans in our lives that take a long time. Formation, which is a process. We sit there and we go, is there a way to just fast track this? (laughs) to shortcut this, to get through this. So what we do is we often choose counterfeit paths. We choose ways that we think are are shortcuts to fulfillment and to peace in our lives. And our world is built around shortcuts, unfortunately. When we're under stress in our world, we are subtly told how to feel better quick, that we could buy something or consume something, and that would make us feel better or make us more fulfilled but there are no shortcuts in the kingdom of God. That's what's challenging about a season like Lent, about the journey to the cross. Lent, this journey to the cross, reminds us that the way of the kingdom is not around suffering, but through suffering. Now, we're not alone in our struggle with shortcuts, okay? In fact, one of the main themes of the gospels is Jesus's first disciples' inability to grasp the reality of the cross. They struggled over and over again. What now? We're doing what? In fact, leading up to our text today that Father Brent just read, Jesus has been setting the stage with his disciples about this journey that he's about to take, 
that's gonna lead him to the cross. And it was so counterintuitive, right? It was so different than what they were expecting. They must have known that following Jesus would be risky, but they had no idea the journey that they were about to take. So he's been leading them into the kingdom of God all this time and step by step and each step of the way, he's telling them something strange in Mark's gospel particularly. He tells them, don't tell anybody what you've discovered about me, which is odd. This is what's called in Mark's gospel, the messianic secret. Mark, this uh, author of this gospel, uses this in a unique way, and it's a bit confusing for us because Mark's whole story of Jesus is written as a proclamation about who Jesus is. But yet time and time again, Jesus does something special or amazing or reveals who he is. And then Jesus says, hey, don't, don't tell anybody about this. <laughs> What's up with that? Well, there's a few ways to explain this messianic secret. The easiest way, and maybe you've heard this before, is to say it was Jesus protecting himself from dying too early. He had a lot still to do. He knew that if the authorities found out he was doing things that only God's representative could do, he would be killed immediately. But also, I think there's something else going on here. Jesus is showing them that he is not wanting to build his kingdom around his miraculous works. He's not trying to promote himself as a miracle worker. When Jesus does miracles, if you notice throughout the gospels, he does so with surgical precision. He's really intentional about the miracles that he does. He doesn't just go around healing everybody like a mobile healing clinic. No, he's intentional about it. And every time he healed, one of the things that Jesus is doing is he's reminding God's people, he's reminding Israel of who they were called to be. God's people were always those who were supposed to be the blessing people the loving people, the forgiving people, the bringing in people, and they had forgotten that. So when Jesus heals and blesses and forgives, he's reminding them this is who God's people are called to be. And he stands in as a representative of God's people fulfilling who they are and who they're called to be. Israel always was called to be a healing balm to the outsiders, the broken, the lame, the people. They were to be the people who proclaimed forgiveness and brought them back into community, but they had forgotten that. And Jesus embodies that reality for them. And also these miracles, these acts of power, we could say, or beauty, these are not just displays of raw authority or raw power. They require trusting in Jesus trusting in him. They require relationship. Archbishop Rowan Williams says, Mark is a gospel about relationship. It makes no sense outside the relationship that the writer and the potential reader may have to its central figure. And of course, you cannot have relationship with sheer arbitrary power. A savior who walks through Galilee and Judea, healing and doing wonders at random would not be somebody who invited relationship. Such a savior might invite wonder, awe, admiration, or bafflement, but not necessarily trust. Jesus is calling God's people to trust in him and to remember who they are. This is not a dominating um, figure. This is not a dominating Messiah. This is one who invites relationship. And then as they go along this journey with Jesus, the disciples have found out right before this that he is indeed the Messiah. He is the one that Israel's been waiting on. 
And then Mark says this, he began to teach them. That doesn't mean he's not been teaching them before, but that there's a new stage to their relationship. Now that they know that he's the Messiah, now that this trust or this relationship has been established, Jesus is about to lead them to a place that they're not expecting. He's about to lead them to something so counterintuitive, so upside down, (laughs) that it would change their lives and change the world. So what were they expecting? What were the disciples expecting? Well, as good Jewish men of the first century, they were expecting a revolutionary. Someone who would come in the spirit of David, take back the land, someone who would make Israel an empire once again. Now, the disciples were probably not looking for a bloodthirsty leader, but they were looking for a a leader, right? (laughs) Somebody who would lead them, someone who was powerful, someone who would take them back to the empire days, somebody who would be strong, right? And here, Jesus says something that would just totally change their lives. He says, basically, the way to win is losing. Read the passage again. (laughs) The way to empire is to be defeated. The way to saving your life is to lose it. What? No, that can't be right, right? It's gotta be an interpretive lens here that we gotta read that is different than that. What is he saying? Our culture doesn't like that. Charlie Brown once said, winning ain't everything, but losing ain't anything, right? Jesus seemed to be saying he was going to lose. What? and he was inviting them to lose with him. This is the Christian marketing strategy. Come to church and learn how to die. There are many congregations today that exist to point people to Jesus's power, his miracles, his signs and wonders and beauty. And of course, that's part of the story. That's so important. But it's important to remember that that's not the whole story discipleship always confronts us with the cross. So this prompts in Peter a really strong response. (laughs) He reacts really strongly here. One of the ways to think about this scenario is if we had a political leader, someone who was running for president, who gathered all her staff and volunteers together and said, listen, we're about to embark on something really special and I want you to be prepared for what's going to happen and we're going to lose the election and we're going to lose it big. We're going to lose it in a big way and we're going to be publicly humiliated. And I want to invite you to join me in this public humiliation. And this defeat is the way that we're going to win. Nobody signs up for that, right? So Peter's a good political strategist. He pulls Jesus aside, and it says he rebukes him. We're not told exactly what Peter says, but we can, we can kind of anticipate what he says. So he says, like, dude, you have to stop saying that. No one is going to follow you with this strategy. Plus, if you do lose to them, if you do lose to the empire, everybody's going to say you're a false prophet and a false messiah. It's like Peter is saying, Jesus, stop all this defeatist talk. I'm with you. I believe in you. You can do this. You can bring us back to where we need to be. We've had enough false messiahs. Stop this nonsense. Well, then the text says, he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. 
Well, this is Jesus, as he often does, speaking cryptically. He speaks with poetic language here. And it makes us wonder, why not speak more clearly, Jesus? Just tell us exactly what's going to happen. But sometimes poetic language is the only way to communicate something that's difficult. Jesus is intentional here, and he's quoting. He's kind of half-quoting and half-hinting at themes from the Old Testament, from Daniel and from Zechariah. Daniel chapter 7, there is a figure called the Son of Man who represents God's people as they suffer. And yet, the prophecy promises that the Son of Man will one day be vindicated after suffering. So the Son of Man will go through suffering and then will be vindicated. Well, this is really difficult for the disciples to get their minds around. God's kingdom, which they longed for, would only come after suffering. And yet, even though it was so difficult for them to get their minds around, even though it was so challenging to go, okay, why do we have to go through the cross? Why do we have to go through suffering? That's been the story of God's people since the beginning. Abraham and Sarah were barren, unable to have children. And in the midst of that, God works, choosing them in their weakness, and they become the people of the promise. The children of Israel were enslaved. God steps in, hears their cry, rescues them, and they become an Exodus people. Later, God's people were in exile. God calls them back to the land and they become a return people. This is how God has always worked, not around suffering, but through suffering. And this is so important. It is key to understanding the ministry of Jesus. In fact, it's so important, Jesus would say, that any resistance to this, this idea that we go through suffering instead of around suffering, any resistance to this, any attempt to shortcut is considered satanic. Peter rebukes Jesus. He says, Jesus, stop this defeatist talk. And then what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Well, that escalated quickly, right? Nothing escalates a conversation quicker than calling someone Hitler or the devil, right? But Jesus is so strong in his reaction because he knows this will be the main resistance against his ministry the entire time. The desire for things to be dominating, conquering, the desire for a shortcut, trying to get Jesus to accrue power in the world's way through a shortcut rather than through the Father's way. It was the same temptation he faced in the wilderness to shortcut the cross, to achieve victory through worldly means. Our God doesn't take shortcuts. Because shortcuts mean trampling others along the way. That's not who our God is. This is one of the beautiful realities of the Trinity, that our God is in and of God's self-community, that God is always deferring, always giving, always serving, not seeking to dominate, but seeking to give. Giving his life is not just something that God does, it is who God is. So anything else that stands in the way of that is get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Many of you are familiar with the classic C.S. Lewis story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And the gist of the story is that there's these four children who find their way into another world called Narnia through a magical wardrobe. And they quickly learn that an evil and powerful witch has seized control of this magical land, Narnia, and proclaimed herself to be its queen. 
Well, one of the children, a whiny brat named Edmund, ends up conspiring with the queen against his three siblings. I think we have some illustrations of this that may go along, but anyway. Um, All right, there we go. So we've got these four children. They come into Narnia, and then we can move on to this next one. We have this whiny brat named Edmund. He ends up conspiring with this wicked queen against his three siblings. Well, fortunately, Edmund's siblings are able to get away from the wicked queen. But while they're on the run from the queen, the three siblings meet Aslan, the magnificent good lion who is the rightful king of Narnia. And Aslan heads up a successful rescue operation for Edmund. But before long, he's confronted with the evil queen. He's confronted by her and she reminds Aslan of this thing, this law of the universe of Narnia, (laughs) the magic which the emperor put into Narnia from the very beginning. This magic is the moral order of Narnia. It's how Narnia runs. It's how the world works. And in the words of the wicked queen, it stipulates that every traitor belongs to me, belongs to her as my lawful prey. And that for every treachery, I have a right to kill. And so the witch continues, that human creature, the one who committed the treachery, Edmund, is mine His life is forfeit to me. His blood is my property, she says. The moral order of Narnia says that Edmund's wrongdoing leads to his death. That's the way this works, this magic works. Aslan can't refute the queen's claims. There is a moral order that holds Narnia together. And it's this deep magic that Lewis calls it. And it can't just be waved aside. It can't just be forgotten about. To break covenant with God, the source of all life, is to forfeit life. Edmund forfeited his life to the evil queen when he sinned against his brothers and sisters. And this deep magic could not be thrown aside. It couldn't be rescinded. But Aslan loves Edmund despite his sin. And so he offers himself up as a sacrifice in Edmund's place. Since the great lion is obviously a much greater prize than any human creature, and since the queen thinks killing Aslan would allow her to finally rule Narnia unopposed, she accepts the offer. Later that night, Aslan shows up at the queen's camp, is mocked, tortured, and humiliated by all of her evil minions, and finally put to death on the stone table where the justice of Narnia's deep magic is carried out. But if you know the story, Aslan does not remain dead. He is resurrected a while later, and the stone table is split in two. Edmund's two sisters are baffled. How did this happen? Why did this happen? (laughs) What is going on? And Aslan says this, though the witch knew the deep magic, there's a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked back a little further into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. The magic of Aslan is deeper and older than even the deep magic of justice. It is the magic of pure, self-sacrificial 
self-giving love. Aslan overcomes death, breaks the stone tables, destroys the evil queen's hold on Edmund, leads his disciples into a victorious battle against her, and thus liberates the inhabitants of Narnia from her oppression. And in the end, Edmund is transformed along with his three siblings and enthroned as rightful rulers of Narnia. Okay, great story. What does that mean? (laughs) There's a moral order to the universe, and it's necessary, and it's good. But there's something even deeper, something even deeper still. And that is the nature of who our God is, that he is always the God who gives himself That's deeper than everything. Not trying to accrue power, not trying to dominate, but the one who is always at his core, the one who gives himself. One of the things that we see in our gospel story of Jesus and his disciples is this contrast between saving and losing. Jesus shows Israel over and over again who God has always been. Jesus is God in the flesh and Israel's God has always been the self-giving God. God is the one who loves, who chooses, who is not dependent on us, but who loves us. I mentioned earlier the story of Abraham. God chooses the children of Abraham as his people, but there's one problem. Abraham can't have kids. In the very beginning of Israel's calling, God chooses Abraham in his weakness, not in what he can do, but in what he can't do, not in his strength. God's people from the very beginning are born out of their dependence, out of their own need, out of nothing but God's choosing of them. And yet if you keep reading the Abraham story, it says, Abraham fell face down, he laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? So God gives this incredibly beautiful promise. A family is going to come from you and they're going to be my people. I'm choosing you in your weakness, not in your strength. And how does Abraham respond? (laughs) He laughs. Abraham laughs. Peter rebukes. Peter's rebuking is like Abraham's laughing. It's a failure to trust in God's strength because of our own limitations. Both Abraham and Peter put their trust in Jesus, and yet they both have times of laughing or rebuking. Peter and the disciples forgot that their faith, their story, their existence as a nation was dependent not on human strength, but on the recognition of our weakness and the God who makes something out of nothing, who makes life out of death, who makes victory out of suffering. The Christian path is one of dependence. It's one of weakness and self-giving. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a strength to that. (laughs) When we choose the way of self-giving, when we lay our lives down, we find our core is stronger, right? We are not moved by every wind and wave that comes our way. And yet this requires constant recalibration because it's so counterintuitive. It's so upside down. In fact, Jesus gives this threefold command for discipleship. Discipleship is three things. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. The first thing, deny yourself, is the beginning of conversion. When you came to faith for the first time, we say no to a way of life. If you know the baptism liturgy, when somebody's first baptized, we say no to Satan and all of his works. And we say yes to something, this new life in Christ. 
Well, the third thing, so that's the first thing, but then the third thing Jesus says is to follow me, which is an ongoing process, a path or a journey. But that leaves the second thing, take up your cross. What's it mean to take up your cross? Is it a one-time thing? What is it? Well, Luke in his version of this story says, take up your cross daily. That daily we have to say no to the counterfeit life, no to the shortcuts, no to the old life. And we do it every day. In fact, I imagine these hypothetical conversations Jesus has with the disciples where the disciples just over and over again go, hey, Jesus, is now the time we should get the army? Oh, wait, I forgot, we're not doing that, right? Like we have to over and over again say, no, not that way. It's a different way. We do it every single day. And the accuser will raise his head over and over again. So what is it for you? The accuser is gonna say over and over again, you know, if you were just a little bit more talented, you could have the good life. You know, if you hadn't messed up your life the way you did, you could have peace. You could have fulfillment. You know, if you were just a little better with money, things would go better for you. You know, if you could just get your act together in social situations, you would be acceptable and lovable, right? You know, if you could just manipulate the situation or control this situation a little bit more, you could get ahead. You could be the dominant one. You could be the one on top. All of those are rebukes. Those are all the Peter's rebukes over and over again. And yet, when we are shaped by the strange kingdom of God at our core, we can say, as Jesus said, not today, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. I am choosing the slow life, the intentional life, the others-oriented life, the self-giving life, because that's what Jesus did for me. I'm choosing the deeper magic, the mystery of grace. I'm choosing to rejoice in my weakness, the place where I feel like I've failed because God makes beautiful things out of broken things. Now, here's the thing. We, we don't strengthen our core just by being inspired by a sermon. You're gonna forget most of what I said today. It's true and it's fine. Okay. But it's important to look at our practices in life. Where is our time oriented right now? Where's our energy going? What is it that's shaping us? We've got to be really intentional about our rhythms. And we've got to gather Sunday after Sunday because that shapes us. It forms us. We need to pray. We need to immerse ourselves in scripture. Why? Because the pull towards shortcuts, the pull away from the kingdom of God is so strong. We need those formational rhythms in our life. What are my daily rhythms? What is forming me? Is it the notifications on my phone from social media? Is it my CNN alerts? Is it my video games? Is it my political framework? None of those things are wrong in and of themselves. But when they become the primary forming reality for us, that's a problem because we're Christians. (laughs) We have a different primary forming reality, right? Amen? (laughs) So let's declare today, we will resist the shortcuts because we know they're hollow and they're empty. They promise a lot and they deliver very little. May we know the one who did not take the shortcuts, who gave his life for us, who doesn't leave us in our failure and our shame. May we know the one who meets us in our darkness and shows us the better way. Amen.